Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We all have a story to tell. Hello and welcome to another edition of Between the Lines with Virtual Academy. We're a podcast going beyond the badge to allow members of law enforcement, public safety, and first response a place to tell their stories and also talk about the cases that have impacted their lives. How are you doing? I'm your co-host, Brent Hinson, and today we have a guest who has truly made law enforcement one of the center points of his life, ultimately becoming chief of police of the U.S. Supreme Court for 14 years. This past February, he released a book using stories from his career to help illustrate how law enforcement agencies can create a culture grounded in accountability in order to restore an environment of trust, confidence, and cooperation between the public and the police. And Michael Warren We've been fortunate to welcome some remarkable guests over our 75 episodes. I have to believe today's guest is at the top of that list. I would agree with you. Uh, We've referred to the other podcasts that you do several times, and I always find it interesting. I'll think I know something about an artist or about a band, but then I listen to the podcast and it's like, son of a gun. (laughs) I had no idea. And and I think that that's what we're going to find about a part of policing that I think I know about, but I'm probably going to find out I am woefully ignorant in that area. Man, I was doing some uh, research on our guest today. And some of the things that, some of the quotes that I was reading, some articles that he, he's written, I want to know more because he has some interesting takes on things. And I've said it before, I admire people that think deeply and I enjoy the conversations with them because the truth of the matter is uh, law enforcement is complex. Uh, we live in a complex country and, and that requires deep thinking Uh, It's not something that's going to be fixed or solved or made better with shallow responses. So hopefully today we're going to get an idea of what that looks like. I believe so. Well, our guest today has a similar story to a lot of our guests. He is the son of a police officer, grew up in the world of law enforcement. And so after graduating from the University of Maryland, he joined the Washington, D.C. police force in 1973, where He was sworn in as one of only 10 officers with a college degree in a force of nearly 5,000. Over the next 43 years, he rose through the ranks, ultimately becoming deputy chief of the D.C. Metro Police Department. And then, as I mentioned before, chief of police of the U.S. Supreme Court, where he remained for 16 years. Earlier this year, he released a book, Ethics-Based Policing, Solving the Use of Excess Force. We'll have that in the show notes for you folks. It's our distinguished honor to welcome Chief Ross Swope to the podcast. Thanks so much for taking some time to talk with us today, Chief. Uh, Much appreciated being here, and I'm flattered by the compliment that you both paid me. Well, Chief, I want to talk about your dad for a second, if we could. Where where was he a police officer? In Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. So, so, so you can't say that when you joined up with the force that you didn't have an inkling of what it was going to be like to police in our nation's capital then. Well, I had more than an inkling because I was one of the fortunate few in PG County in Maryland where I grew up that had great men to mentor me. And back then, the solidarity between police was very solid. And my whole, my family's whole social network was with police. They were courageous, brave, kind family men, not prone to violence, but not confrontation adverse either. And I learned a lot of things from them. 
And that's why I gravitated. That's why it was my mission to make the difference in communities and neighborhoods just like they did back then. That, that brings up an interesting thing, at least to me, because you talked about working with D.C. Metro Police, but you talked about neighborhoods. The vast majority, the overwhelming majority uh, of Americans who visit Washington, D.C., never see the neighborhoods. They see the museums and they see the government buildings, but it's a city. I mean, an actual city that has gas stations and, and grocery stores and, and, like you said, neighborhoods. It's almost like they're hidden from the public. Well, you're right there. The tourists come in, uh, the commuters come in in vast numbers, doubling the size of the city every day. And they travel major arteries and go to their work or they go to the museums and monuments and pay tribute there. But they don't go where people live and shop and do business. I worked in predominantly the lowest socioeconomic status neighborhoods there. But there are people there, their neighborhoods, their communities. And that's what I saw it as. It was my job to protect and serve those in need most. And those in those neighborhoods were in need the most. And, and I think that's true in most of our big cities, that the people most in need of protection are the ones who can't afford to leave. And in many cases, I hate using the term stuck, but they're stuck there. They can't afford to move someplace else. They can't afford to move someplace safer. And as a, a society and as a profession, we have to be there to provide what protection we can. I agree with you, protection, but I was also there to serve. It's protection for them, yes, but also police service. We do a lot of other things besides lock criminals up. We look for missing children. We help people at, with their requests because this is what happens in those neighborhoods. They can call other D.C. government agencies and they're notoriously unresponsive. So they turn to the police for everything. When they turn to me and my colleagues and my subordinates and my superiors, we took it as a police matter and got things done for those residents in those communities. It's funny, people, especially younger officers will ask, hey, why are people calling us about problem with their, their water service on Saturday night? Because we're the one department they know that they can call and they're going to get the phone answered because the war department may not be working on Saturday night. And so we, we need to go. I, I live in Michigan and we need to go during the winter to make sure that we're not somebody's house isn't being flooded because a pipe has burst. They can't get a hold of some of these other services, these other agencies that provide services. So they depend on the police. And I would propose that as a profession, we, we need to, to get back to that because in society today, we have made the word servant mean less than. And I believe that being a public servant is one of the most noble things that somebody can undertake. Well, the, the intrinsic rewards that I receive from my occupation and my profession cannot be exceeded. Every day I left work, I felt like I accomplished something my subordinates did, my peers did. We all left work feeling like we accomplished something and did something good. That's the whole goal of a job for me. A man that likes his job never works a day in his life. I never did. I did things there. It was the best profession I could have chose. 
I couldn't agree more, but I, I want to ask you a couple of questions here, if I could, just to get a sense of what policing was like when you first came on the job. When you first came on the job, America was a country in turmoil. We, we were at the tail end of the Vietnam War. Uh, there were, were a lot of protests going on across the country, and, and you're working in the nation's capital. And so it, it seems like there's almost a dichotomy of requirements for you. you, you you've got to, to, to keep public order when it comes to protests and the things that are going around around the government buildings, but you also have the neighborhoods that need service. What was it like being a police officer during that time in D.C.? It was always, to me, exciting and rewarding. Always. Now, D.C., Metropolitan Police, then as in now, are the nation's experts on handling mass demonstrations, whether they be violent or peaceful, mass arrests if they're necessary, and keeping these demonstrations in hand. They are the experts. We handled more demonstrations there than any other city in the United States. In front of the White House, every single protest down there, we handled. And they were massive, many of them, because people come from all over the country to demonstrate there, whether it be uh, the right to life, whether it be gay rights, whether it be against a war, a battle, Desert Storm. We had lots of demonstrations, whether it be with another country. We were the experts there and they were all handled superbly. We knew how to do it. We were practiced, confident and competent. So when those things happened, we went down there and handled them. When they weren't happening, we did other things. We policed the neighborhoods and we did that with empathy and we did that with caring. At least the men and women under my charge did because that's the way it should be done. And I led by example and gave them direction and guidance. I saw where you wrote an article on uh, LinkedIn earlier this year that I, I, I found just really fascinating. It was you found yourself always going to events, no matter what they were, in order to learn from them, to gain an experience. And through those times, through those experiences, it kind of took away fear and anxiety because and I'm going to try to quote you here. It says, I was able to control the situation or event instead of it controlling me. So how early in your career did that start for you? So I discovered one thing. I call it a career of avoidance. Now, police work is dangerous physically, but when you start making rank, there's a different type of danger. There's danger to your performance evaluation, what your superiors are going to say, what the new media is going to broadcast about you, what your subordinates see. So if you don't go to a scene, there's no chance to be criticized or ostracized. Many of my peers engaged in what I call a career of avoidance. I learned that when I was assigned my first demonstration in front of the State Department with 500 demonstrators down there and me taking 60 officers go down there and telling me to handle it, I didn't like that. I didn't like it because I was uncomfortable. Out of your comfort zone, as you said. I don't want to be uncomfortable. I found out early on by repetition on these things, I became very comfortable. So every demonstration, shooting, serious incident, bombing, bomb threats, barricaded armed subjects, 
I went. And if I didn't take charge, I watched who was and learned things. So you can imagine after my first demonstration, my second one was a little easier. By the time I got to my 10th, I was competent and confident. By the time I hit my 20th, I knew exactly how to handle everything. The officers knew me. They've seen me work. And when I pulled up, it was everything's fine. I went to everything to learn these things. So and get out of my comfort zone. I wouldn't have to do that anymore. So by the time I was 20 years deep, virtually wasn't anything I didn't feel good about going to. And if I did, I forced myself to go. Now, my colleagues from time to time would call me on the radio and say, hey, Ross, I got a barricade over here. Do you think you can slip by? I said, sure. And other ones would say, if the demonstration gets hot here, can you come over? Sure. We're all working together. I mean, you chose your pay if I chose mine. But at what point, it's almost like a parent-child situation. Do you say, no, you have to handle this one so you can learn on your own? I didn't really do that because most of the times that they were calling it was critical. Okay. (laughs) When you have an armed gunman barricaded in a house, I can't risk telling them handle it. If there's a violent demonstration that they're wigged out about, I can't deny them assistance because they don't know what they're doing because people can get hurt, property can get damaged. So I I agree with you. I wish there was a point where I could have told them to handle it, but they're calling me on critical situations that they're very uncomfortable with. We had uh, Sergeant Justin Witt previously uh, here on the podcast. He works with the Louisville Metro Police Department, and he talks about the time they had all of the protests going on in their city. And he says, to be very honest with you, we hadn't prepared our people for what they were going to have to do. And he said that the best that we could do at that point was, as we're sending them out to the front lines, we would say, be careful. And you mentioned it several times there. You talked about, I trained for this. I was prepared for this. And because of that, I was confident that I could handle this. That's one of the things that I think that is missing in many agencies is that we can foresee these events that our people are going to have to handle. And we often do a poor job uh, preparing the people that actually have to go out and handle it. And I'm not just talking about, you know, the, the frontline people. I'm talking about the frontline supervisors. When we're confident, because we're competent, we get much better results from our people than if we just have to send them out, as Justin said, be careful. Oh, I agree with you 100 percent. And training is key. Supervision, management and leadership is key. But also officers have to be immersed in these events from time to time because they're going to be at their comfort zone. Now, you can survive and do well in demonstrations if you have good supervision and leadership and you don't know what you're doing as an officer. But there's other experienced officers there. So when we were doing this with the D.C. police, we had what's called a civil disturbance unit and they had contingents in every district from patrol officers. Now, all these patrol officers were trained for mass demonstrations, civil disobedience and barricades. So they could always be called on. But as you made rank, you stayed there. So you were in this unit, CDU, Civil Disturbance Unit, as an officer, sergeant, lieutenant and captain. 
So you rose up the ranks, you knew everybody, you worked together and new people would come in and they would watch you and you would talk to them and train them on the job training while it was happening. And it worked well. I've been in some real dicey uh, battles with officers who were just been in these events as many times as I had. And they were as cool headed and calm as you would ever see anybody be. And I work with them and I admire them and sergeants that work with me under my charge. It was a team and it worked well, but it was training, leadership and experience. Absolutely. My, my 12 year old is playing football. And so on the team that he's on is a team of seventh and eighth graders. And Connor uh, is playing linebacker. Well, he's one of the only seventh graders in the linebacker core. And I so enjoy watching when he goes out there and the eighth graders, he's he's there as part of everybody else, an eighth grader, and they're helping to direct him. He knows what his responsibility is, but, you know, they reposition him just a little bit so he's better ready to handle the play. And that's what I think that is missing in many agencies. And, and you call it uh, the, the career of avoidance where the people that have that experience, that have that, that institutional knowledge, that have that expertise, refuse for a variety of reasons to step up and help direct the people that don't have that level of expertise and experience yet. My mantra in that position was, I am there to serve. And my service is not just to the communities and neighborhoods, my service is also to my subordinates and peers. So when they needed something, it was my job to serve. And my service included training, talking to them, giving them confidence, showing them the ropes, being with me or being with other men and women that they could learn from. I'm there to serve. I love the term service and I love the term serve. You know, I, I'm there as a leader to help to teach them, to help guide them along the, this pathway. But I think that a lot of leaders would be better on that side of things if they also had a service of learning where I'm willing to learn from those that I work with or that are my subordinates, but have more subject matter expertise in a particular matter. And I am a, a big proponent of lifelong learning. And it just seems like we have professionals, quote unquote, that get to a certain point where they think that they've been there, done that, and there's no longer a need for them to improve their knowledge, skills, and ability. My whole life has been learning. I agree with you 100%. I have a whole section in that book about knowledge, the essential knowledge in police. That is experiential knowledge and book learning knowledge. So I knew my general orders, police manual, uh, traffic rigs, municipal rigs, U.S. code, D.C. code, backwards and forward. I studied it my whole life. I always did. Knowledge is important. Laws change. Things become felonies to misdemeanors, misdemeanors to felonies. Some become criminalized. Some become decriminalized. If you don't stay on top of that, you can't serve. Book learning, that's what that is. Experiential learning is, as I said, getting out there and doing it and seeing it and finding out what works best. I have a whole section on that. My whole life has been learning. I got my last degree at Cambridge in England at 52 in applied criminology. And I believe, just to point out, you've got three masters. Am I, am I correct? I do. Lifelong learner right there. 
if you were made chief of all police <laughs> in America, how do we go about instilling that need for lifelong learning? Where, where, where do we start? What does that look like so that people come into this profession, not only with an understanding that uh, they need it, but a mandate that they actually do that? How, how do we make that part of our professional culture? I guess the way I always did thing is getting people to do what you want them to do because they want to do it. There's got to be some type of motivational factor there. Now, I tried to set the best example, no matter what position I was in. When I was a sergeant, I worked with the officers. This is what this means. This is what this means. And I was a subject matter expert on the laws and rules and regulations, but you should be those two. And when I was a lieutenant, I did it to the sergeants. As a captain, I did it to the lieutenants. And as a deputy chief, I did it to the captains. So I was trying to, by example, show them how powerful knowledge is and powerful in that you are better to serve, not just the public and the residents and the neighborhoods of the communities, but your better serve your subordinates, your peers, and your superiors. It makes your department look better. So it's a matter of conveying the motivation of them, letting them see this is not just a benefit for the department or people you serve. It's a benefit for you personally, because you learn you will be better. That will be recognized. You will be recognized. You'll be recognized by the citizens of being a smart cop, not a slap, stupid, lazy ass police. Okay. But you'll be a top cop. And I write a lot about being top cop. I've got a lot of secrets to tell these officers. And I tell them being a top cop takes effort. But if you put forth the effort, the rewards are there for you personally and professionally in your performance evaluations, promotions, selection processes. So, for example, if you were selecting somebody to be a detective, Everything's the same except for one thing. This one person is smart in the books. He knows everything. All things being equal, which one are you going to choose? I try to use examples like that. I'm making a selection. There's Everything's equal except for one thing. One person is very knowledgeable and knows everything about the laws, policies, and procedures. Who are you going to choose? We all know who's going to get chosen. That could be you. So personally and professionally, there's nothing but upside to learning. Now, you all know that cops have downtime from time to time. Even in Washington, D.C., on a Tuesday night at three o'clock in the morning, the calls for service are not coming in. Take that half hour, read something. General orders, policy and procedures, laws. I did it all the time. And they served me well, enabled me to serve my community and subordinates and peers well, too. Knowledge is powerful. All right. So, so a, a couple of things to, to piggyback on what you said, if we truly want our people to serve the community, and, and I think we should, then from a leadership perspective, I think we need to model that behavior by serving those who are subordinate to us. I'm a big believer that the way that our people handle the public is a direct reflection of how they're handled internally. And I love the way how you keep describing how, hey, I, I was there to serve my subordinates. I was there to serve my peers. It's not a matter of giving away your authority. It's a matter of pouring into somebody else so that they in turn can pour into the community. 
like I said, I tried to set the best example I could. And I never gave direct orders except in exigent circumstances. So when I had somebody, I needed something done, I said, hey, could you do me a favor? Would you mind doing this for me? I never said, go out and do this. I talked to subordinates like they on my level. They're men and women I respected, and I wanted them to respect me, so I treated them with dignity and respect. I never hollered at them or screamed or dropped F-bombs all over their head. It wasn't necessary. We had an understanding. They knew me. I'm direct and honest and straightforward. Doing that, I was showing them by example how we do this. The only time I gave direct orders was when we were taking rocks and bottles or somebody was going to get seriously hurt or killed, then there was no time. It has to be direct orders. Other than that, it was a team effort. Management that's participatory. I called subordinates in when there was time to make decisions and talk things out. Now, I don't like yes men around me, okay? I tried to avoid them. So captains or lieutenants or sergeants that work with me, under me, I listened to them. They knew they could speak up and speak their mind. I wanted to hear it. Sometimes I disagreed. Sometimes they come up with good stuff. Now, I know a lot of cop work stuff. I've done it for 43 years. But there's always, as you said, things you don't know because you don't know. And I listened to them and learned. It's continual learning. You're 100% right. I agree. Hands down. So you used the phrase uh, a career of avoidance. And so I wanted to kind of get an idea. How does that figure in? What part does that play in this this concept that we've heard over the past several years that this called depolicing, where it seems like there is uh, in some agencies, perhaps a, a bit of a culture of if I don't go out and do things, then I can't get in trouble because I'm not doing anything. You know, I, I can't have a citizen complain if I don't have contact with citizens. I, I can't get in trouble for excessive force if I'm not arresting people. How do those two fit together? Well, I agree with you. There is, in my experience, a lot of agencies that are in that uh, culture right now. The officers are not keen on going out and doing what they really should be doing. This is what I'm being told by the officers themselves and the officials above them. My take on it is this. It's not because they're necessarily frightened or scared, always getting in trouble, but that's part of it as you identified. The other part is the community and police relations are suffering right now. My shield is tarnished because of the deeds of a few bad cops. So the public is not in a good relationship with the police in many of our communities. And that has to be turned around and changed. It's going to take leadership and management and supervision to instill the what I call police core virtues. And it's the sergeant's responsibility to hold his subordinates accountable for ethical behavior. Once that ethical behavior is instilled, the community relations will improve. And with additional cooperation between the police and community, things can get back. I know they can get back. Uh, I've tested it. I've tried it. It's in my book. 
this is what needs to be done. And I, like I said, it's been practiced and tested. It's been my experience and I get to go to a lot of agencies and, and speak and, and train and, and that type of thing. If you have supervisors who are practicing avoidance, if they're not addressing behavior that is questionable or borderline, that type of thing, that's the supervisory version of de-policing. And if I, as a subordinate, see that my boss is unwilling to do their job because it makes them uncomfortable to to have that difficult conversation with somebody who's not doing their job or is doing something they shouldn't, then why should I be expected to go and have that conversation in the community? Again, we go back. We cannot overstate the importance of solid, positive, ethical leadership within our organizations. Until we have that, it's going to be very difficult to improve those community relations externally until we fix it internally. But don't you think that there's a responsibility on both sides, accountability on the community to say, well, wait a minute, we need to look at the officer's point of view. And then also the officers to say, well, wait a minute, we need to look at the community's point of view, because personally speaking, uh, being just an observer that's not in law enforcement on this podcast, doing these uh, episodes has really changed my perspective on the law enforcement career. So I think there's got to be a point where in order to get to some uh, solution, each side has to say, we need to look at the other side's point of view, and that's how we can go forward. I'm not putting my, res- well, my opinion is I'm not putting my responsibility on the community. If I build it, they will come. If I build an ethical culture, which I did in all of my commands, the public came, not came to the police, but the relationship was improved dramatically because of the police conduct, performance of duty and service to the community. It was recognized. They saw this and they came and we worked together. It can be done. And you are 100% right about the supervisor's responsibility to build that culture and to change hearts and minds. I've, I've identified like three basic sergeant positions. One of them's laissez-faire, does nothing. The other one is Mr. Popularity. He tries to take care of everybody, no matter what they do until he's forced to hold somebody accountable. And then there's the ethics-based official, holds officers accountable for the performance of their duty in two ways. Consequences for bad, rewards for good. You follow me on this? And I couldn't agree, I couldn't agree more. When I, when I was in the military, my squad leader, I was a fire team leader, said, listen, your people's personnel files should hold four good things for every bad thing that's in there. It's lazy as a leader to only punish the bad and never reward the good. It seems like we, we become that where we're constantly looking for that, that gotcha moment. Instead of saying, you know what, that was excellent, the way that you handled that call, the way that you listened to that citizen is exactly the way that we should do it when the circumstances allow it to be done safely. I would love, I wish the rest of the ship could have been here to watch you do that. 
And it seems like we're, we're, we're so quick to point out when we do something wrong and so reluctant to point out when our people do things right. But it also kind of bookends what you said earlier, doing so, being ethically based, it takes you out of your comfort zone because sometimes you're, you're looked at as the bad guy. So in my book, I've got what's called continuums. And one of them is the reward continuum. It starts off with a nod of approval. Then it comes out minor words, great job. Then he's recognized, powerful motivator, recognition, more so than money and rewards. You call him back in roll call. I want you all to know what went on yesterday. This was good police work. There is an informal commendation put in his jacket, a note put in his performance evaluation. He's recommended for a reward. He's rewarded by major recognition. So there's a continuum. These all need to be exercised continually by the good supervisor because it's powerful. And it not only rewards him, but other folks see what's going on, don't they? Absolutely. I want some of that recognition. I want some of those good words. I want to be called out in roll call. So then it's contagious because they see the positive aspects of that sergeant holding the officer accountable for good work. And they wanted some of that. They want to do that. So they gravitate to the ethical policing culture. That's how it's done. It's funny because you'll get people in organizations say, "Ah, you know, I don't like the recognition and stuff like that. Listen, we are wired as human beings. We want to be appreciated. Listen, if you don't believe it, look at the number of award shows there are. I mean, for crying out loud, the number of awards and award shows that are out there, people want to be recognized. That shouldn't be the driving motivation for why we do things. But listen, you know, I'll raise my hand here. Even though it's part of my job, helping out with the laundry around the house. Man, when I do the laundry, I want my wife to recognize the fact that, hey, thanks for doing that today. And you know that that right there is enough for me to do it again the next time. But if it's ignored, well, why would I keep doing something? It can be done. It can be done. But it requires work and it requires work. And that's that's to me, that's part of the service that we provide to our people it is through that type of recognition. These things take effort. If you don't have the wherewithal to put forth the effort, maybe you should find another profession. This Absolutely. is serious, serious, critical business. If if you're not up and in, uh, you need to get out. All right, Chief. So, so uh, DC Metro, uh, you end up retiring from there. I cannot tell you how excited I am for you to tell us what it's like to be the chief of police for the Supreme Court of the United States. What in the world is that all about? The Supreme Court of the United States police provides protection and security for the chief justice and associate justices. So if you follow on that, we do the secret service function for them. We also protect 400,000 visitors to the court a year. We do policing of the area around the court and Capitol Hill. We enforce laws. We screen. And if there's major demonstrations, we handle them. Uh, I'm going to show my ignorance here. All right. You ready for this? 
it doesn't take it. It happens pretty regularly here. But, but anyway, it, you know, you talk about, hey, you know, our job is to protect the, the justices. Right. And the, the goings on the proceedings, if you will, uh, for the United States Supreme Court. But then in the next breath, you say, and also the 400,000 people that visit every year. It would seem that the easiest way to accomplish mission number one is to cancel mission number two which is not let anybody in the building. Why is it so important from a law enforcement perspective for our people, our citizens to be able to see buildings, to be able to see these things that go on that have direct impact on the way and the manner in which they live their lives? Why is it so important that we open it up so it can be seen? I classify and and title that is human nature at work. It's one thing to hear about something. It's another thing to allow the public in and see the actual workings of our government. I think that's very important. And public was let in for these Supreme Court arguments whenever they had them. It's a right, almost interaction when you're there watching this going on. It's an amazing thing. You see the justices, the chief justice and the lawyers discussing the case and arguing their point. A big important thing to me that there's interaction between our public and our highest ranking government officials to see them at work. I would be overwhelmed being that close to that type of decision making where where you, you can actually hear arguments that are going to decide how your chosen profession must conduct themselves from here on out. That just had to be humbling being that close and recognizing the importance, the historic importance of what's going on right in front of you. Yeah, I mean, I, I from time to time would go in and sit in the courtroom and listen to cases and what was the arguments to and for and against. And it was interesting. It was interaction between the justices and the lawyers. They went back and forth and asked questions and talked and those poor lawyers had to um, fend for themselves, so to speak, because <laughs> some of the justices uh, tuned them up. But anyway, it was it's interesting to watch the workings of that. And I'm sitting in there watching. There were not that many criminal cases, to tell the truth. Right. Law, you know, that I was involved in and things like that, like search and seizure and things. There wasn't in that many of those because that's pretty well settled. When they did, it was interesting to see. And interesting to listen to. You're in this unique position to where these cases, landmark cases are being decided, and you have to have some sort of opinion either way on, on the outcome, but yet you have to put on your law enforcement hat and take that personal how you feel about the case and put that aside because there's going to be protesters outside and you have to maintain order. How difficult was that to do? To tell the truth, I didn't find it that difficult. It's like when I was in D.C., there were some laws that I didn't agree with. Nonetheless, you know, when somebody had to be arrested for a violation of that law, I was not determining what laws I'm enforcing and whatnot. Now, granted, I used a lot of discretion. People don't. I'm sure you fellas know about discretion, but the public doesn't necessarily understand police discretion. And I exercise that all the time for benefit of those that I served. 
public and officers. And the same thing here. Um, when they had a major case that happened and there was demonstrators out on the plaza and my job is to keep the plaza cleared. So I went out there and they weren't violent or not listening. I just went into the crowd and says, hey, we have to clear the plaza. And they were all happy and celebrating. I said, just move down to the sidewalk. And they cooperated. I always go the easy route. And they cooperated. I didn't arrest anybody. That was discretion. I was exercising it. I didn't necessarily agree with a finding on the case, but they're celebrating. I'm exercising my discretion. I'm not locking anybody up. I'm asking them to move off. It took me 15 minutes to clear the plaza. That's the way I handled it. All right. So, so Chief, you brought up discretion and that that I'm hoping is going to take us into the next part of the conversation, because in law enforcement, there are very few thou shouts where where you are lacking discretion when it comes to the way in which you handle a case. Uh, you know, on a local level, uh, domestic violence is one of the ones that, that most laws say that if you're able to determine who the aggressor is, then you shall make an arrest and it takes away the discretion. There are a lot of you cans, but that doesn't necessarily mean that you have to. So when it comes to discretion, I want to talk about your book. Your book starts off ethics based. Discretion is almost always better when it's based on an ethical foundation. What was it that led you to write the book? How long you've been thinking about doing it? What what did you hope the outcome was from somebody who read uh, your particular book? I sort of have a little bit of cred. So I've had my peers knew I did things and accomplished things and changed things. And as police status and positive communication with the public has deteriorated over the last few years, they said, Ross, you've got to sit down and write this book. You've got to sit down and write this book. You're the only one that can. You have to do it. So I sat down and wrote it. I'm sort of knowledgeable in the field of ethics. When I was teaching at Hopkins, I had a professor come to me and he said, Ross, are you going down to that national symposium on police integrity Janet Reno is hosting next week? I said, I didn't hear anything about it. So he connected me with the coordinator of this thing. And I said, yeah, I'd like to come down and see it. And he says, yeah, sure, you can come down. And this was powerful academics. Guys I studied in graduate school, powerful. I think it was about 200 of them. So it's a three-day conference, and I go down there on Sunday morning, and I go in, and I get the program, and I'm reading it. It said, 2 o'clock Monday, Ross Swope, keynote speaker. Uh, I go grab the coordinator by the lapels and said, what are you doing? He said, well, <laughs> you said there was no police here speaking. Now you are. <laughs> <laughs> so I take off out of Lawfall Plaza like a scalded dog and go. Talk about getting out of your comfort zone. <laughs> so I take off and go up to the station where there's the only computer. And I knew what I had been doing my whole career. So I banged it out. The police core virtue bell curve. I know that scares the bejeebies out of you, but here it is. So I go down and give my speech. Uh, that Monday, and I get this. Sit down and shut up. 
not literally, but figuratively. <laughs> I'm just a cop. These are all academics with books all over the place. So it was uh, about a year later, Rampart Division of LAPD scandal. I don't know whether you are familiar with that. Yes, sir. Nationwide scandal. The Rampart Division was robbing drug dealers, stealing drugs, reselling them, beating people up, robbing them and all this. It came out. There was a major investigation. I get a call a few months after that investigation is initiated. Deputy Chief calls me and says, uh, Chief Swope. I said, yeah. How you doing? He said, we just want to let you know that uh, our 300-page report on the Rampart corruption incident is being published tomorrow, and you are prominent in it. I said, Okay, so what's with that? We got Janet Reno's book of all those speeches. She published every one of them in a book. Mine was in there. We went through that whole book, and the only thing we found applicable to our problem, and you hit the nail on the head, was what you said. Wow. So that was a big deal. So that things exploded after that with ethics-based policing and me and the police corps virtue bell curve and so many talking heads out there using that theory now. But I don't care. It's, it's all good. So that's how it all started. And I've just been carrying the torch since then with other people lighting torches off mine. All right. So, so then if we were talking and we're talking here about your book, who in the law enforcement profession should read it. Is this for executives? Who's this for? It's for sergeants and above. Sergeants and lieutenants is who I'm aiming it at to have this knowledge. Now, I'll tell you why it's sergeants and lieutenants. So, I don't know of a police department in the nation that doesn't have some type of mission statement, general order, policy or procedure on you will behave ethically, you will do this, you will do this, you will do this, you will be kind, empathetic, don't drop F-bombs, everything. They all have a policy and procedure mandated by the chief of police, all of them. But if that policy and procedure and what the chief is saying is not enforced by the first line supervisors, it doesn't mean a thing. And that's how this use of excessive force came about. There's officials down there, sergeants and lieutenants, that did not hold subordinates accountable when they were doing bad. It's their responsibility to hold their subordinates accountable. No matter what the policy and procedure is at the top, if it's not enforced down at the lowest level, sergeants are the last men and women to touch the mail, right? Yes. Understand. They're the last one to interact with the officers. When they go out and do patrol, when they go to the street, whatever they're going to do, they're the last ones to do it. They're the one that needs to set the ethical culture in that department. Chief of police can say what he wants. Those are the ones are our ethical gatekeepers. Those are the men and women that I want to read this book and understand what I'm trying to tell you and understand the benefit it's going to be to you, your department, and everybody, to the community. That's who it's geared at. I know when I made sergeant, I went to sergeant school, first line supervisors, and lieutenant the same. It's my wish that big departments that have this would adopt that book 
and little departments can teach people to train their sergeants, teach people to train their sergeants. So it doesn't cost a lot of money. It doesn't take a lot of time. It can be done in-house and it works. Well, this book has been out six or seven months now. What's the reaction been? What's the response been? Uh, have people come to you and uh, given you feedback after reading it? I've got tremendous amount of feedback. I've got 2,000 people following me on LinkedIn. I post something and three days later, I've got 1,500 impressions. Because I tell stories and write things. I put them out there. This is not in the book. It's just my experiences and knowledge. And I put it out there. And it's not just police that are picking this up. It's the military, the fire department. It's men and women that are citizens are reading this stuff and saying, wow. And I'm, the feedback is, uh, I'm buying your book. I'm buying your book. Your book was the best. I've got reviews of, of other cops, chiefs of police talking about how essential this is, how to the point it is, and this is things we have to get done. So I'm so flattered and pleased by the feedback that I get from men and women in my profession, but also those that aren't in it. It's important to them. And I, I, I'm overwhelmed by the response that I've received so far. Chief, I want to throw this at, at you here as we're, we're coming to a close. I think one of the things that we have to do is reframe the perspective that being ethical doesn't restrict you. Be, being an ethical police officer actually frees you to serve in the manner that your oath said you're going to serve. Jocko Willink, he, he you know, wrote the book, Discipline Equals Freedom. Being disciplined doesn't mean that you have less freedom. It frees you to, to do what needs to be done. And to me, that's, that's the way that ethics work. Ethics doesn't, doesn't mean it doesn't restrict me from doing my job as a police officer. It frees me to do the job the way it should be done. I, I agree with you 100% that it, it does indeed do that. It frees supervisors to ensure that their people are well taken care of because taking care, just like taking care of my kids doesn't mean I let my kids do whatever they want. It means that, that I serve them by guiding them along the path that is going to serve them well so that they can serve others. Exactly. And that is all police want to be part of a high performance, disciplined, rewarding organization. And that is what ethics based policing is part of. You build that culture. These officers are going to be high performance. There's going to be a spree de corps. They're going to work together. The public's going to see it. They're going to serve more efficiently and effectively. And the, the side benefit is, is that we have improved community relations. And when we have improved community relations, we, it's, a, it's a cycle. When we have those improved community relations, they're talking more with us. We're talking more with them. It actually improves our performance. It just keeps getting better and better, or in the terms of, of some of my good friends, it just keeps getting gooder and gooder. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy, is it not? It is. So. I want to stress the importance of the personal rewards that one gets out of this. And that's the thing. The intrinsic rewards, when you finish your shift and are driving home and you just did something that was really good, that stays with you. And you want to do it again. 
because it feels good. It's a reward, intrinsic reward. Nobody said anything, but you know you accomplished something good. And that's a big motivator for me, and I think for a lot of men and women in our profession. You know, Chief, they talk about that when a person leaves the career, the regrets that we have to, when we're thinking, when we're alone, it's nice having the regrets of, man, I just wish that I would have been able to do more instead of, boy, I wish I hadn't done that. I wish I hadn't behaved that way. The, the, those personal rewards go beyond the career. They, they make us happier. They make us healthier in our home lives. They make us happier. They make us he- healthier in our retirement lives if we live and work in an ethical fashion. I couldn't be in more agreement. We need to build the culture and policing based on ethics. Reward ethical behavior, model ethical behavior, both internally and externally. And we are much better off as a profession and as a society. Couldn't agree more. Well, as we wrap it up, folks, I know that the chief said this is for sergeants and up. I, I would go and I would add that if you aspire to be a leader in your organization, whether formal or informal, this is a great place to start. And all you have to do is look at the title, ethics-based policing. Everything you do should be based upon an ethical code. And this provides some some realistic, some practical ways of doing that. So so Chief, I want to personally thank you for taking the time to, to write down your, your thoughts and write down your experiences so that others can learn from them. Uh, we're going to include uh, in our show notes how people can access the book. Uh, again, thank you for your service and thank you for what you've done in your book here. Uh, I had a great time today. I got to say a lot and I learned a lot too. I appreciate both of you having me on the show today. Hey, you, you know, Brent, uh, uh, policing in, in our nation's capital uh, is, is something that I, I never did. I I can only imagine that some of the unique challenges that are faced there have to have served the chief well in his experiences that he shared in the book. Yeah, and learn from people who have been there before you. It's like the chief said earlier, if you find yourself where, you know, it's it's maybe a slower night and you've got some time, get the book available on Kindle, available in, in, you know, a paperback form and thumb through some pages and learn something so you can better yourself. And we're going to allow that opportunity by putting a link to his book in the show notes. You guys can check it out and learn more about the chief because I think he has a fascinating story, a fascinating life. And uh, we could not uh, be more grateful that he, he took the time out of his day to join us. So chief, thank you so much for being a guest with us today. And uh, we wish you nothing but the best. It was thoroughly my pleasure. Thank you both.